Hello and welcome to the Celeste Stein Show, coming to you live from the greater Nashville area. Today, I'd like to begin by welcoming my three special guests, Dr. Pam Johnson, a journalism professor at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky. She is the first black female publisher of a general circulation newspaper in the US, the Ithaca Journal out of New York. She also has served as the director of the Dow Jones News Fund for college interns and faculty from historically black colleges and universities. I might also add that she graduated from the University of Wisconsin with a joint PhD in mass communication and educational psychology. And one last interesting fact, she's actually been invited to the White House on three occasions. Next, we have Wanda Lloyd, who is also a journalist and author by trade. Her recent memoir, Coming Full Circle from Jim Crow to Journalism, tells her own story about living in Savannah, Georgia, and then working for seven daily newspapers in founding and leading university programs to teach journalism, then coming back home and making a difference in her own childhood community. She has also served as the founding executive director for the Freedom Forum Diversity Institute based on the campus of Vanderbilt University in Nashville. I should also mention that she is my Spelman sister. Welcome to the show. And finally, I'm delighted that Dr. Matthew Knowles could also join us today. Dr. Knowles is an author, professor, lecturer, public speaker, entrepreneur, music executive, artist manager, and founder of Music World Entertainment. His company is one of the world's leading music and entertainment entertainment conglomerates with record sales exceeding 450 million worldwide, having worked with Chaka Khan, Earth, Wind & Fire, The OJs, Destiny's Child, and his daughters, Solange and Beyonce, just to name a few. Welcome to the show, and I sincerely thank each and every one of you for joining us today. I want, to, I want to mention, before we actually get started, that uh, we do have a call-in number, and I think we already have several people holding on the line, so we will get to you within the show. But if you do have a question and uh, you want to hold that thought, the 800 number is 888-710-8061. We'd love to hear from you. I'm going to start off by saying, obviously, this week has been quite a week with the recent death of George Floyd at the hands and knee of a Minnesota police officer. This has set off mass protests and obviously civil unrest and several instances of violence, both civil rights and First Amendment rights as well. I'd like to start by asking each one of you if you feel a paradigm shift has occurred with the level of protest that we are seeing in terms of the number and types of people coming out against what has taken place here. Wanda, I'd like to start with you. Sure, good, good, good afternoon. I'm so glad to be here. Good morning to some of you. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, I do feel a paradigm shift. I have spent a great deal of my um, professional capital, the years that I worked as a journalist, helping uh, the media industry and other industries address the issues of diversity. I am so uh, thrilled to see so many young people who are taking, taking part in this, in this movement. And this morning I was trying to think, what are we gonna call it? You know, we, we had the civil rights movement, we had different, we had women's movement, we had voting rights, you know, there were all movements. And so I guess what I would wonder is what are we gonna call it? But I do believe that this is going to be a big change. You see so many trees falling and by that I mean industries. You see people saying, oh my goodness, I had no idea. We have conversations with people who really didn't, in some cases, want to believe that some of us who are African-American, no matter what our economic, socioeconomic level is, had been through, through some of the struggles. And this is actually part of why I wrote the book. So I'm uh, journalism, I'm sorry, um, coming full circle from Jim Crow to journalism. And so I'm really encouraged that this is gonna make a real difference. And I look forward to having a discussion about that. Yes, I wanna uh, also hear from everyone here. Dr. Pam, would you like to weigh in on that? Do you think there has been a, a huge paradigm shift to occur here? I think that there's a big shift in how people are thinking. For example, we're talking about Gen X 
and the millennials. And this is the largest group in the US and in the, in the whole world. So they have a completely different mindset than other people do. And the one thing that I'm so pleased to see about black students or, or young blacks is that they know their value. For example, um, my own daughter, when she, when she applied to five different schools, um, she didn't get full scholarships. She got partial scholarships. So she um, uh, worked for a year and a half, then went back. They gave her the same scholarships. And she said, oh, no, I'm more valuable. I've had this experience. I should get more money. And she did. I have a nephew who graduated from Howard University in law. And he had done all the right things, went to a very prestigious um, a, uh, company in D.C. And he um, excelled there. One, and one weekend, he had told them far in advance, my fiance is coming this weekend. I don't want to work. They called him into work. He left and went to um, California. And now he's got a nice practicing firm. And he um, is as a defender. And um, it goes on and on. A young woman who worked at the, um, one of the major newspapers, she didn't feel that they were promoting her, so she moved on. So when, I don't think people realize how much these people know their value. And when you know your value, you act differently. And also the white millennials, they value diversity and other groups didn't. And so I think that this is a sort of an interchange that a lot of people don't even recognize this there. Yeah, very, very good points. Uh, what about you, Dr. Knowles? Uh, I was well spoken. I couldn't agree more with the, the two doctors before. Uh, but some context on my, my answer to your question. I grew up in Gaston, Alabama, 1952. I never went to a black school. My mother went to high school with Coretta King. I integrated, desegregated elementary school, junior high school, Gaston High School, University of Tennessee. I only went to a black school my last two years of college there at Fisk uh, before I went on to, to higher education. I've been uh, spit on, electric prodded, beaten, mm. uh, and, and I've seen so, so many paradigm shifts. And as the guest before me, I teach young people. This is my 12th year. I'm at Prairie View A&M this semester. And I'm so, so proud of the social courage. That's the name I give it, of our young people. The ability to speak up, speak out, speak against sooner, quicker, faster than we did about racism, xenophobia, homophobia. And, and I think integration about 15 years ago, kicked in in a special way. And we see these young people, and we see also their white counterparts. They went to elementary school together. They played sports together. They dated each other. And in some cases, married and had children. It's a different society now. These young people know how to scale, as we use in business. They understand the power of social media. It's our role though. It's our role to support, and I call old folks because I'm 68 years old. It's our role, role to get away, let these young people through and, and almost act as if we're advisory board to them. We first need to find the leaders, give them our support uh, and, and let them do their thing and trust them. They will make some mistakes. We all did, but that's how we all grow. But we have to do a conversion here. Marching is great. The conversion is voting because if we don't vote, all of this was for naught. Mm -hmm. Very, very true. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. My uh, next question was, was actually about the leadership you just mentioned. And that is, where should we be looking or where should our young people especially be looking for leadership at, at a time like this? Well, in normal times, we would be looking at the top of our government. 
um, that's really where the leadership oh. ought to come. And, and it has, you know, in some ways in past times, you know, um, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. There, there have been President Obama spoke out against racism. So many leaders, government leaders have done that. That would be where we should be looking. But, you know, we're looking for leadership in organizations. We're looking for leadership in coalitions. We're looking for leadership in education. We're looking for leadership still in the faith community, which has changed from the time we grew up. Uh, the faith community is younger in some cases. Um, it addresses religion in different ways. It addresses worship in different ways. And so, there, you know, I don't think, I don't think our leadership is going to come from one, one person. I don't think we're going to have, especially in my lifetime, another Martin Luther King type leader who everyone sort of follows. We really are looking for a coalition of leaders. Right, because I think, you know, as I was growing up and, and working as a journalist, I think about, you know, there were several people over the years we looked up to, like Jesse Jackson and uh, Al Sharpton and uh, some of our civil rights activists in Atlanta, Julian Bond, and uh, just so many people that uh, paved the way, Andrew Young, Maynard Jackson, I could go on and on. Right, but, right. Um, now, it, I... I think I'm seeing in the much younger generations, like Martin Luther King's grandchild, hearing her speech, uh, <laughs> it, it was just uh, incredible. I was definitely wowed with, with her. And I've seen some other very young <laughs> uh, folks that seem to be the ones that are emerging up in terms of leadership. But um, I think that the, the broad perspective of looking in all these different areas for leadership is also important too. Uh, Dr. Pam, would you like to weigh in on that? Also, yes, I don't think I don't think they're looking for leaders. I think we're going to see them as more of a grassroots movement rather than you know looking for leadership. Also, they they have worked in teams. They have been educated to work in teams, and so I think that it's going to be on a more grassroots level. And they will be very powerful there. And so they don't really think that they need a leader. It's not that they don't need a leader. They're just able to work without one. And I was very pleased, though, to hear um, some of them say, talk about Dr. King. This is his dream coming true. This is Dr. So it's not that they don't respect our leaders. They, um, you know, just were in adoration of him. But it's just that I think that they're more of a grassroots movement. Right, but but I noticed that we did see a lot of looting, um, and I certainly don't think that was his vision. The whole vision, obviously, was a nonviolent movement, and there were lots of things done that were very effective, like the boycotts. And I will just say that we have, we still have not evolved to things like that. I mean, I'm I'm seeing it here or there, but it just does not seem to be an organized effort. I think that you will see that. I think that these people, these um, millennials and Generation X are strategic thinkers. And I think that that's going to come out. And I think that the looters, they were people from outside. And um, you're always going to have them. For example, I was just thinking the other day, what if after a march, or we don't even need a march to have it, we have... Um, learning sessions or, or learning teams, whatever you want to call them. And we educate them about um, the history. Why are you doing this? Some of them don't know. Like Wanda mm -hmm. said that she um, included uh, information about Jim Crow in her book because she found that so many people didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. Our mind is more powerful than a gun. We just have to put the information in. Mm -hmm. Wanda, I'd like to kind of come back to you on that sure. um, in the book. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what prompted you actually to, to move in the direction, you know, to tell that particular story? Well, one of the things that prompted me was when I left the news, the, my last newsroom, and I came to Savannah and was a professor and chair of the Department of Journalism and Mass Comm at Savannah State University, I started interacting with students on a daily basis. And I would have to sit down with um, all the seniors in order for them to get through the, their matriculation and graduate. And, and as we sat and talked and had kind of a career chat, many of them asked me for my story. What was my story? Because they knew I hadn't been in the academy all my career. And I started telling them that I was from Savannah originally. I left 
Savannah in 1967 that I lived through the Jim Crow era and they went, Jim, Jim what, what is that? They had not had these conversations in school. They had not had these conversations with their parents for whatever reason, their grandparents had not told those who, those who grandparents who had grown up in Jim Crow like I did, people weren't talking about it. It is almost as if in school, they studied uh, slavery and reconstruction and the civil rights movement. And they missed that whole step of this legal separation that we, we lived in in the 1950s and 1960s. So that's largely what prompted me, in addition to inspiring young people like the the um, Gen X's and the millennials that um, Dr. Pam just talked about, inspiring them, using my stories to inspire them to um, become successful and understand what it takes to be successful. A lot of hard work, a lot of education, a lot of uh, coalition building, a lot of understanding the past. So that's what really inspired the book. Yeah, and Dr. Knowles has also written a book on, on racism and, and growing up uh, in America. Dr. Knowles, would you like to elaborate a little bit on, on also what prompted your book and, and talk a little bit about that, please? Well, my book is uh, Racism from the Eyes of a Child. Uh, and I, I wanted to go back, and it was therapy almost for me. And I talk about in my book the 10 years of therapy uh, that I have gone through because of racial trauma. A lot of people didn't get it, but I'm sure you get it now when I was talking about racial trauma. Uh, folks, I've looked at racism. I've looked it in the eye, getting the hell beat out of me by state troopers. I'm not, not talking about it, intellectualizing about it. I look racism in the eye and it's ugly. And I wanted to share that and how I internalized the whole a lot of things as a child and how that affected me as a, a adult. Uh, and I want to share those stories, uh, how racism exists outside of, of my childhood in corporate America, in the music industry. Uh, and I think we all understand that today, but I do want to just, the question before, I think it's important that we understand Dr. Martin Luther King was 23 years old. Malcolm X was 29 years old. The two brothers at the Black Panthers, one was 23, the other one was 29. All the folks, Jesse, all the people you name, they were all in their 20s, folks. They were young. And yes, we absolutely need leadership. Leadership is critical in an organizational culture. But the question is, we can do things at a local level today. Change can occur at a local level immediately from our mayors. And we've had so many black mayors. Why can't they call these police chiefs and, and, and tell them what the policies are? Why is it when I look on TV and I see these, these demonstrations, I see these big football player looking white boys as police officers? Is there no black police officers? I'm, I'm confused. Mm -hmm. Thank you for allowing me to just to have a conversation. Yeah, this is great. I mean, I, and I think there needs to really be more of this, as, as uh, Dr. Pam uh, mentioned, about just the whole education component of this. Because I think about, like, um, community policing. And the fact is, you know, covering uh, communities in, in five different cities over the years as a journalist um, one of the things that I noticed in covering a lot of stories of this nature where people may have protested um, is that there was a disconnect. There were people who were policing in areas that they did not live. And so a lot of times those would be young people, rookies who unfortunately did not have a lot of experience in the communities that they serve. So I feel like if they were working within those communities early on where it wasn't like separate, um, where somebody's going off into the suburbs and, you know, then coming every day into the inner city to deal with some of those issues that you get to know people. And that's really what it's about starting to really get to understand and know, uh, people 
at the, the basic grassroots level. And then you can have a better idea of how to serve those communities. Because obviously, you know, many of the, the folks pay taxes, but they talk about unequal, uh, you know, taxation without, you know, fair representation. And so those are things that we have got to start to uh, demand, I think, as, as a community, as a nation. So um, Les, I really believe that this is, there's an analogy between what you just said about um, police officers going into different communities and journalism. Because, you know, at the beginning yes. of my uh, advocacy for diversity in journalism, we found that we had journalists who were not comfortable covering certain communities. And it was Absolutely. not just um, training black reporters or bringing in black reporters or brown, black and brown reporters or women for that matter. But it was a matter of making sure the white reporters understood the whole community. I mean, to the extent right. that one of my seven newspapers, I think maybe two of them newsrooms, um, I hired a bus and I took the entire staff on a tour of the community because right. I thought it was important right. because they kept hearing about this other community that they never set foot in. And I think, quite frankly, I think some of them were afraid to go there. But I right. wanted, and I had a tour guide who was a historian and who could talk about the rich history of this community and the pride of the people who live there, who many of, many of whom were foot soldiers in the civil rights movement, their, their parents and their grandparents, and, and saved money and made money so that they could educate their future generations with pride. And now they're taking pride in the grandchildren who may not live in that community anymore, but are who, who are making um, significant contributions, not only in their local cities, but in other places. This is a culture, I think. This is a culture um, yes. education that's, that's needed. And, and I, I will go back to the fact that it really crosses socioeconomic. You know, I, the day that a friend reminded me over last week or this week while we were going through this, the day I moved back to Savannah in 2013, we were unpacking. The movers had just left. They dropped off all these boxes. And my friend was in the house with my husband and me. We were unpacking. The doorbell rang. There was a police officer at my door. I hmm. live in, a, in a, an affluent, fairly affluent neighborhood that's mostly white. Not all, but mostly white. And someone had called the police to say that there were black people in this house. Now, this was 2013. Your own, your own house. In my own house. Right. You know, we're packing boxes and setting up the kitchen. So, you know, things like that happen. I have not been beaten, I have to say. You know, I have been stopped. Other members of my family have been stopped while driving while black, driving a nice car, I'm sure. So we really have, it's a culture um, shift that uh, has to, ch to change minds in this country to understand that people are people and that some of us yeah. are striving to be uh, to, to, to get to the next level of the socioeconomic level and some of us may have already arrived but we're all feeling the hardships of this this culture that people don't understand right that, that something you said reminded me of when I was in school at Northwestern uh, for my master's program in journalism um, I was in a class I was the only African American uh, in that class and you know we had about a dozen students and many of them were from all over the, the country but training to be the future journalists and our professor asked them how many of you have ever you know covered anything you know within say uh, a community and culture that's different from your own and uh one girl raised her hand she said this is the first time i've ever been in a room from where i came from with someone else of color and i i just looked i was like so you know the conversation was opened at that point to talk about the fact that the only thing she knew about people of color that looked like me were things that she saw in in the movies and on television and obviously some of that is a little exaggerated at times it may not be quite accurate so just like in any race there are good and bad people in all races and so it's it's getting to know people and and really being able to understand uh the differences and nuances in culture i believe um one thing I'm, I'm noticing um, that uh, we do have a couple of people kind of on standby. And so I think I'm going to take a quick uh, break to see if uh, we'd like to have anyone chime in and, and ask a question of, of anyone on the panel at this point. Um, we will, let's see who I have here. Um, 
Jim Snodgrass, uh, if we could open his mic, uh, allow him to ask a question. Jim, are you there? Hello. Okay, he uh, says he's not able to unmute him. Um, let me try that. I have uh, okay. Can you hear us, Jim? I see your mic is unmuted. Hello. I'm. I see. Also, we have. Uh, if you want to ask your question in the chat, um, if we're unable to to unmute, we also have uh, Rexana. I believe Lester on standby. If you would like to um, ask your question, uh, we can hear you. Hello? Hi, I'm just listening. Yes. I, I, I really don't have a question yet. I just want to listen. Okay, great. I'm here to, great. I'm here to learn. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, and I think, I don't know, Jim, if... Uh, if you're able, uh, I don't know if you have a question, but um, I know uh, your mic is open now. Okay, well, we'll, um, I guess we'll continue. And uh, if you'd like, we can um, also get your questions on the chat. So feel free to, you know, just type your question in into the chat room and we will get to you as soon as possible. So Lester, if you don't mind, I would, uh, Rexana is a friend of mine. She's a, a white friend in Savannah. Um, okay. We've been friends probably since the 90s. We actually met in Washington at the White House and she's a former executive editor of the paper in Savannah. But what I wanted to say is there are people like Rexana and others who really are trying to learn. And I think we should put ourselves in a space where we can help people learn. You know, she, she's learned a lot from me and from others, but there are other people who are trying to learn. And I, you know, I would hope that when this movement settles out and some of the protests in, because they will end, we can't sustain this kind of protest forever. Um, I would hope that somehow a structure is created where people individually in small groups in small communities, um, in small organizations, um, will uh, find a, a, a safe space where people can have these conversations, where people can talk honestly about things that happened to me, things that happened to Dr. Knowles as he talked about being beaten. People, you know, you get to a certain point in your life and you think, well, he's, he's, he's good. Nothing bad has ever happened to him in terms of race relations, but it has. It's happened to all of us. So I would, right. I would hope that we can create those kinds of uh, cultures where people really can have conversations. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think a lot of times people are shocked to actually hear from people like us who have experienced these types of situations because there are times as a journalist, especially, I've found myself in some very interesting and tight spots that I never expected to be in in a million years, but uh, things do, you know, transpire. But um, one of the things... Let me just hone in. I, I love yes. what was just said. Because yeah. if you're a black person, and if you've ever flown on an airplane, checked in a hotel, went to a prominent restaurant, for example, we're fortunate and grateful my wife and I fly first class. We live in another city other than Houston. That's recently. I wear, like you, like you see me now, sweater, pair of jeans, and, and, and some tennis shoes. I don't get all dressed up. I'm putting my bags up and a flight attendant comes, sir, 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 that's reserved for first class. That hasn't happened just one time, two times, three times, four times, several times that happened. The perception. And when we talk about that, I heard the word structure. I call it structural racism. When we look at our poverty level, our housing, our educational level, health and wealth, welfare, the criminal justice system. It's a whole structure of racism that has to be changed. There's no happenstance that 
we look at COVID-19, and by the way, folks, uh, the media seem to forgot that COVID-19 is a pandemic, and a whole <laughs> yeah. bunch of people next week is going to be sick and some dying. I don't understand that. That's a conversation in and on how it went from a thousand to zero where the Jedi mind trick all the time. But anyway, mm-hmm. but anyway, <laughs> you know, it's just time for change. It's just yeah, time. I, I also had a comment. There are a lot of apps. I was surprised at how many, and they're geared toward. Um, all different age ranges and topics. And so people can go on and look at those individually as well as use them in discussions for any groups. But there are a lot of apps now that will talk about racism. Yeah. One of the things um, I'd like to point out, we were also talking about um, being journalists and journalism. One thing that I have seen recently that I have never seen before is the arrest of the CNN reporter Omar Jimenez, who happens to be my Spellman sister's son, uh, who reports for CNN that he was arrested in the middle of doing his job. It's not like they couldn't see the CNN camera in front of him. Um, I just, you know, what about that and the, the uh, destruction here of our First Amendment rights uh, as journalists to to be able to speak out and to tell these stories that are so important, mm-hmm. so that history does not repeat itself. Um, and, and Omar wasn't the only journalist. I saw a tweet the other day. I think it was yesterday or the day before. A young yes. brother was in in Birmingham, and he tweeted, "I'm in jail. I was arrested. I was covering the march in Birmingham." Somebody, you know, reach out to his um, his boss at whatever news organization he worked for. Um, I'm sure there were many, many others. Um, it is a First Amendment issue. You know, there are five freedoms in the First Amendment. And, right. and the first freedom that I thought about as we started this was the right to, to petition the government uh, in a peaceable way right. for yeah. redress. And then yeah. I started thinking about, of course, when Omar was arrested, the freedom of, of the you know, freedom of the press. And he is a part of that. And then, right. you know, we saw someone standing in front of a church with a Bible probably upside down. And I thought, well, wait a minute, this is not, this is not what the four forefathers intended when they put freedom of religion uh, in the, in the first amendment. I think we have a question in the chat now. Um, Let me see the um, zoom chat. I see. Okay. Maybe a couple. Okay. Uh, From Jim. Oh, Roxana uh, says she has a question. She, she okay. wanted to get back on. And I also see uh, uh, Jim Snodgrass, he, he put, uh, he apologizes, his mic is not working, but I'll read this. He says, I'm a white citizen with close friends of all races. I was greatly disturbed by what I've seen with these events with Mr. Floyd and Mr. Aubrey uh, and others, and frankly was shocked at the magnitude of the problem. My question is, the topic naturally makes all persons uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's vital all races unite to drive change. What advice will your panelists provide to white supporters on how we can truly help? Who wants to take a stab at that? Well, one? I would start by saying when you see something wrong, you know, point it out. People just kind of walk by and say, oh, well, that's their issue. Um, I'm not telling anybody to get to put their life in jeopardy. That's not really what I'm talking about. It could be in your workplace. It could be in a store where someone is refusing to, to um, you know, to serve you in a, in a place of business. You know, I remember walking through Neiman Marcus years ago and I asked a lady to let me see a, a piece of jewelry that was under the counter. It wasn't fine jewelry, it was just under the counter. And she told me, oh, that's expensive. Well, you know, I didn't ask her how much it costs. I, so when you see something wrong like that, you really need to, I think that's the first thing that I would suggest. Others may have other suggestions. Mm-hmm. Either of you, Dr. Pam? I think that um, white people can also educate other white people. For example, if I were sitting in a room of all blacks and we were talking and a white person came in, um, you know, the room would go quiet and I would nod my head, you know, and that means, oh, he's okay. And so I think it's um, that. W- when I was, well, for example, um, my boss asked me to head um, the diversity committee. 
And I said, no, I think white people should head the diversity committee because when I run a diversity committee, they think that I want them to like me. I don't want white people to necessarily like me. I want them to get out of the way so I can do what I need to do. So if we have um, racist policies in our business and that policy is there, if I'm working for that company and I'm gonna follow their policy, I have to follow a racist policy. So wherever I'm working, I should look at those systems and see where we can change them. I think people can work from where they are. If you're a teacher, you know, work with other teachers and, and see what kind of um, things you can put in your curriculum. I don't think that um, you can't force someone to be friends. For example, if someone said to me, Pam, you need more um, white friends. Well, I can't just go up to a white person and say, I want to be your friend. But what you can do is put yourself in situations where you are normally attracted to a kind of person, black, whatever that you would be friends with. So I don't think it's something that, I think it's something that we can be proactive, but I don't think it's as hard as we sometimes think it is. Right, and, and it doesn't have to be forced, but right. you know, sometimes it's just uh, people naturally kind of separate and, and, and tend to draw close to those people that are like them when often they should be uh, seeking out people that might be slightly slightly different. Dr. Knowles, did you want to add anything there? Yeah, it, it goes back to the social courage that I talked about earlier, but I want to applaud the, the two people that just spoke and asked questions uh, to white people. I, I think it's time that we stop being uncomfortable saying black and white. You know, people get so uptight. You know, they use the music. We use the pop division and the urban division. You know, let's stop that. Let's be real. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it's these type of dialogues. I wish it was all white people listening right now. I love when a woman said, I'm listening. I, that right. was beautiful. We are, we do have our differences. Culturally, we have differences. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about the subconscious of racism that a number of white people, there's never all, but a number of white People feel privileged. Let's talk about what privileged racism looks like. Mm. Let's get it all out on the table. Change is supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's not supposed to make you feel good. It's supposed to make you feel bad. And that's how we change is we get it all out. Yeah. And, and so I applaud having these types of dialogues and we need to have more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's, it's been great thus far. Uh, wanted to uh, note, we have uh, a caller on the line from Georgia. Uh, I don't know if that's Frida. Um, is she still there? And see if our engineers could pull her up. And then also, uh, I believe... Uh, Rexana also had a question now. Are you able to, uh, okay. I think your mic's open. My mic is open. I, I was going to turn on the video, but I can't do that right now, but I could just talk. It, and it kind of follows on what you were just talking about. This week I met with some white people in a park, just three or four friends. They're really good friends of mine. And I was actually in a rage over what, has happened and what was happening and they were afraid of my rage i can't imagine <laughs> if, if, if it had really been a tense situation these are very good friends of mine but I, I just i couldn't get my arms around what was happening and then when i calmed down a little bit several of of them started talking and essentially they're afraid of doing the wrong thing and it kind of paralyzes them a, bu a bunch of us are going to go this afternoon. There's a meeting in Forsyth Park, which is our big park in Savannah. Uh, and it's a group of people. And I, um, I actually got notices from both black and white friends who said, come. So I think it's going to be a, a mixed group, which is, was really amazing about the, the marches here. It was a very open, friendly, big, I mean, it was intense, but it was, it was very mixed group. But I'm having trouble dealing with 
white people who are even afraid of me, another white person talking about race. Wow. And I, I find that, but what you guys said really, I mean, it's what I'm thinking. You know, they have to put themselves in uncomfortable positions. They have to learn to read. And I loved what several people have said over the last week is we have to be neighbors, whether we live together or not. Until we can think of each other as neighbors, we can't really think of how we want to treat each other. So anyway, I, you, you really answered my question, and I just wanted to say thank you, and I'm, I will continue to listen. Thank you. Um, well, it's interesting that you're, you're bringing the point up that you did, but a lot of people have turned a deaf ear when Colin Kaepernick, you know, decided to, to bend a knee, you know, he was called out for that. Of course, now the NFL commissioner, uh, Roger Goodall, is saying that the league was wrong for not listening uh, to the players about racism. So, you know, I think this is the, the one time that people are starting to, to think, hey, maybe there is an actual issue here. I think Many African-Americans and people of color have known that this is something that uh, has been desperately wrong for, for quite some time. But the, the willingness to speak out about it, you know, their people are uh, very uncomfortable. I have several friends that, you know, uh, when, when a lot of things were going on politically, uh, you know, a lot of people were defriending other people on platforms like uh, Facebook and Instagram as, as some of the uh, dialogue uh, was, was coming out. Um, and some of it, you know, was, was based on fake news, as we all know. But I think that um, the more we can open up and talk about it, certainly uh, the better. One of the things I'd like to kind of move on to is talking a little bit quickly and briefly about uh, the coronavirus and the fact that so many, you know, 43 million Americans, nearly 43 million are out of work. Um, how worried are you all about the future with that? Because there doesn't really seem to be talk of any type of strategic game plan as to what actually is happening here. Are we phasing back into work? How many businesses are we going to lose? There are so many questions. Uh, when it comes to that and, and how are we going to, to actually deal with what is what's going to happen over the next couple of months? Uh, any of you can certainly feel free to take a stab at that one. Well, I'll, I'll start. We're all parents, all of us, mm -hmm. and all of us on this, on this chat. And I fear for our children. I fear for the generation of our children and our grandchildren. Um, because m most of us are at a point where we're pretty secure and weren't affected by it. I'm retired. And so the money I had in January, I have in, in June, it didn't change. But I think about my own daughter who is uh, in her late, almost in her late thirties, who works for an industry that may become vulnerable. She's still working, thank God, but it may become vulnerable. Um, there are a lot of young people who work in service jobs. And if those service jobs don't come back, if those businesses don't come back, I really fear for them. I really um, think about the fact that when I was in my career, if I, have, if I needed to change a job, I could always go to another city. Everybody's not that flexible. Everybody doesn't have that opportunity to just pick up and move and go somewhere else where the jobs are. And so, you know, I think we need to look at the structure of, of jobs. There goes that word again. <laughs> the, structure, the structure of jobs, you know, um, how do we create positions in our own community so that people can stay together? I, I personally lived in eight states. That's just what I did, but everybody's really not willing to do that. That that's yeah. the starting point. Yeah. Dr. Knowles, I know um, the entertainment industry is what we all look to, to be able to escape and uh, be able to come home and relax, or we normally like to go to a movie or a nice concert or what have you, but obviously that has completely changed. I mean, what are you seeing as the, the future there of entertainment? First of all, what a great panel. But, um, you know, entertainment, I want to just briefly, in entertainment, go back to Colin Kaepernick, because white owners, white people, did not even white football players who we heard 
Drew Brees put his foot in his mouth yesterday, day before, they didn't understand what this brother did had nothing to do with the flag, nothing to do. And they didn't get it. And that's the dialogue that a lot of white people don't really get what we're saying. Uh, but, but to entertainment, um, you know, it's tough. It's going to be a while before you see artists on the stage or you're able to go to a play, uh, you know, and it goes back to that structural racism. It's no surprise that we lead in a death rate because we lead in a mortality rate of heart disease and cancer and every other major mortality rate of health and wellness. So is that a surprise? Is it a surprise that of the 30 million, 10 million blacks are out of work? Well, we leave, lead in a poverty rate per capita. So is that a surprise? So it's a structural circle of racism that has to be fixed. Uh, but, you know, I came from, and I'm proud to say, I'm the third generation entrepreneur. Uh, my, my, my daughters, they make the fourth generation of entrepreneurship. And we have to go back, I always say in the 60s and 70s, the only people that truly integrated were us. We moved out of our neighborhoods to white neighborhoods. We moved our, business, our businesses out of our neighborhood. We integrated, nobody else did. We had different people come into our area. When you know, my, my former wife and I and my friend Tina, we had a hair salon for 17 years. It was unheard of of having other than a black nail technician. It was unheard of. I mean, every, we have to go back also and look at the economics of all of this and how do we keep our dollars into our communities. Uh, even if a business is out of our community, how do we support, support black businesses? And you said it, Celeste, in the very beginning. How do we boycott? We're looking at the owner of the Houston Rockets. You, 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 the owner who also owns a lot of restaurants. The guy is a, a personal friend of our president and donates millions of dollars. Like, we still support this man. We've got to stop doing that and start supporting our own. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then getting back to um, something I think Dr. Pam said earlier about education, um, I want to talk a little bit also about how far you all think this might set our young people who have uh, often also disparities in education, not only healthcare, um, it, it's just all across the board. Um, you know, everybody can't afford to have, like if they have five kids to have a computer for each child. So how is this going to impact uh, families in that way as well with parents out of work, no place to take the children for daycare and, and no plan for the future. I think that um, people on the corporate level um, should probably be doing more. For example, we don't have blacks on corporate boards. And I also think that um, there are groups that are in place that can um, help and, and teach our students. For example, the NAACP, 100 Black Men, if, if they, we all in those kinds of groups take on a topic that that's what we're gonna work on for this year, then I think that we can make some progress. So we have whites and blacks, you know, moving together. I also remember that on-the-job training was very successful in the late 60s. And I think that that's something that we can take a look at too. Um, and I, I think that if companies are willing to do that, that that could be a whole entre entree into the workforce that um, you know some young people can't don't have right now. Right. I know sometimes the only thing someone can do is throw money at a problem, but that doesn't necessarily resolve the issue because a lot of dollars have gone into um, protests and, and what have you over the years. What else can those companies uh, be doing in terms of leading the, the folks in, in making sure that 
the the dialogues are open, but that we are actually seeing change that is effective. You know, in the in the nineteen seventies, I believe a lot of the large corporations, IBM, Xerox, companies like that, opened their doors and started internship programs, started mentoring programs for mm-hmm. students who were in college, started you know, offering scholarships to help young students who were in high school go to go to school. And they were tracking these students. I mean, those are dollars, but they're also, uh, it's also a way to reach out and touch personally when you bring people into your company and you, and you mentor them and you train them in that way. Money does help, you know, uh, it really does. I, I, I read a story at the beginning of the coronavirus of a, uh, a mother who had four or five children in the car. She put them in a the car every day because they couldn't afford uh, internet access and she'd take them to I don't know outside of McDonald's I think and sit in the parking lot because they had had internet so that they could literally do their homework in the car they couldn't go inside because you know we were we were shut down but they they could do it in the car we need to you know co- corporations do need to put money behind certain things like making sure that people have access because the internet is the world now you know it you can't do anything without internet and our children need that uh, in Savannah, our superintendent reached out to corporations and collected money to get um, computers, laptop computers for students who didn't have access. Because you're right, you started out by saying a, a mother with five children. If the mother is at home working, and sometimes they are working from home and sometimes they're in service shops, but if they have four or five children, they can't all do their homework on one computer. They all need their own device so that they can get that work done in a timely manner. This is a critical um, example of this economic disparity that needs to be addressed in the United States because education is different from what it was. I hear Dr. Knowles say he integrated schools. We've gone, you know, schools are integrated. Now schools are resegregated in a lot of communities. I, I don't know that a lot of my white sisters and brothers even know that that has happened. You know, they don't even think about the fact that we were black schools and we were integrated and now we're black again and we're white again. And, you know, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama as my last newspaper town and you know, when I got there, a lot of the white parents had sent their kids to private schools, even the ones who couldn't afford it. They somehow found a way to make sacrifices in other areas so that they could send their kids to um, to private schools. And so I got to Montgomery as ex- executive editor of the newspaper to find that 90 some percent of the school system, the public school system was black and not, a, not funded well enough for them to go to the universities that, um, uh, that Dr. Dr. Pam has worked at and some other universities. So there, it, it all does kind of begin with economics, I think. That plus having these conversations. I really think that having conversations about race is also another area that we can address some of these disparities because people really need to know. And what we're finding out with this movement is that there really indeed are a lot of people who just don't know. They don't know about the disparities. They don't know about why people are angry. They don't know about when the people say, be patient, time will come, changes will come. No, we can't be patient anymore. That's what these young people are saying. We're not going to be patient. The time is now. We need those changes right now today. Yeah. Dr. Knowles, I saw you shaking your head. Did you want to I add just, something? Yeah, I was just <laughs> loving what was being said. I was just yeah. loving what was being said. I, it, was, it just reminded me of so many things. Just going back to the corporate world, uh, you know, I worked at Xerox for 10 years. From, from 78 to 88 and was fortunate to be the number one sales rep worldwide at Xerox Medical System three out of four years and was president of Minorities United in the Southern Region, which covered half of the United States and all the black employees. And we had an organization and we had leadership and we met with senior management on a routine monthly basis and we shared and voiced our concerns and we had seminars with all the, the white sales and marketing teams and we share that stopped somewhere somewhere those type of dialogues and organizations stopped in corporate america we forget fortune 500 corporations in america there's only four black ceos out of 500 top fortune 500 companies that says a lot right there. That says a whole lot. So it's about leadership and, and, and dialogue. We've said Montgomery, Alabama. We've said Atlanta. We've said uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, St. Paul. We, we've said Houston. They all got black mayors. 
we shouldn't be in this position of police brutality. Yeah. Yeah. And we got to hold like the policemen accountable because mm-hmm. they in this fraternity and they turn their head. We got to hold them accountable. We got to hold our black mayors accountable. Yeah, so you're, you're just, talking about government, you know, right there. And that's an, another thing. I know in other countries, they're doing things like they, they mail masks to families like every week for the number of people they have in their household and things like that with the coronavirus going on. I, it seems to be definitely not enough going on at the government level to really protect people, to give people... I mean, I, I think a lot's being done in terms of information, but I, I don't know. It's a disconnect with, uh, and they, I, I, I would really say it's a lack of trust a lot of times within the African-American community. I mean, because of things that obviously have happened in the past. Uh, but should the government be stepping up more and doing more with what's happened? I think all levels should be stepping up. For example, um, at the memorial service, um, Dr. I think it was um, Sharpton said that uh, someone had donated uh, some money for a scholarship. And he said, you know, what if all university presidents said, we're gonna start a scholarship too? Well, that's where presidents can do something. And imagine if around the whole United States that happened. My president at the university had the day before sent out this letter about how we're all going to be trained and blah, blah, blah. And so when I heard Sharpton say that, I decided that I was going to send my president a check and say, here's my check for the scholarship. And so I think that that's our, our ways that we can get things moving. You can do it from your level wherever you are. Yeah. Any other things as we're wrapping up here? I think uh, any final thoughts? We'll start with you, Dr. Knowles, and we'll go to uh, Wanda and Dr. Pam, and, and we'll wrap up. Uh, just final thoughts on things that can be done to, to mitigate the level of violence. Yeah, I, I mean, coming to education, Dr. Ruth Simmons at Prairie View A&M University, where I teach, just came out with a, a memo, email, uh, that said, moving forward at Prairie View, every freshman student moving forward, mandatory will take a Black history type class uh, to begin letting our, our young people understand where we come from and the challenges and help build leadership. Uh, and I'll just share a, a quick story. I was going down the escalator at LAX and I'm a nun from Mexico was asking for money I gave and she gave me a business card. I always end with this. It said, pray not for a life free from trouble. Pray for triumph over trouble. For what you and I call adversity, God, the universe, whatever name, calls opportunity. In adversity, there's opportunity. This is the time that we all have to step up and have the social courage. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Wanda? Well, two things. One is I, I think that when Dr. Pam mentioned leadership and you know how corporate boards need to look at the leadership structure, how we realize that we only have four CEOs of, who are African-American in the Fortune 500, leadership at all levels. And my quick story is when I was in my career, I used to always say, when I grew up, I had served on lots of nonprofit boards and I, of course, never get paid for things like that. And, and that's a good thing. But I used to say, when I grow up, I want to be a professional board person because I, I want to get paid for it. But I also want to help corporate, you know, corporations and entities to understand the value of diversity. And so I would say, understanding the value of diversity at every level. Di- diversity is a good thing, whether it's diversity of color, gender, um, sexual orientation, uh, religion, the diversity of political thought. It's a good thing as long as we have these dialogues and we keep, we keep talking and we keep doing things to get us to the next level. I don't think it will ever end. We can always improve. And then the second thing is hope. I have hope in these young people. I have hope that we're at a point now where things will change. And I just want to continue to have uh, hope and belief that they will make a difference and that those of us in our generation will accept that change and work with them. Thank you so much. 
and Dr. Dr. Pam, and we, we have really got to, to wrap this, it this up. Is but fast. This is fast. Dr. King said that racism gives some people a false sense of superiority and gives other people a false sense of inferiority. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been very eye-opening, and I hope it gave a lot of information uh, to folks that were, were tuning in and will continue to hear this. Um, that's all the time we have for now. I uh, do want to mention, don't forget to social distance, wear the mask, get tested, and stay safe. Thanks for watching.